The New Testament book of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul from prison because of his ministries for Christ. This one short six-chapter book offers the believer rich and memorable Word of God for his or her identity, what it means to know Jesus, our goals for Christian character, behavior, joy in the Holy Spirit, Christian marriage and family, and how to fight your spiritual battles. The book of Ephesians is a book of power to transform our daily lives. Friends, we have started our work in the book of Ephesians, and I continue to be swept off my feet by this book. When I was a Bible college student many years ago in a galaxy far, far away, the young students at that Bible college, when they studied Ephesians, they became enamored of this book. It became, in a small way on a Bible college campus, famous among the students because of how thoroughly and how beautifully it talks to us about who we are in Christ, who we are in the church, what the church is supposed to be, both in terms of the leadership of the church and those who are being led. And it talks about our characters. In this one book, in addition to everything that I've mentioned, it also teaches us how to have joy in the Holy Spirit in a way that you may not have even recognized yet. It teaches us about Christian marriage in a passage that we have to be faithful in understanding properly, Christian marriage and family. It teaches us how to do spiritual warfare. This book is an amazing book. And as I prepare and and speak to you from it, I continue to get swept off my feet by it over and over again. Now, Ephesians is one of the books that shows Paul's most normal structure for how he writes his letters. In chapters 1 through 3, he talked with us most about our attitude. He talked with us about what we needed to know, what we needed to understand. When Paul writes a letter to the church, a church, any of the churches that he wrote to, he normally starts with what you and I call doctrine, that is teaching, the teaching of the church. It's sad to me that the word doctrine has in so many churches become this heavy, oppressive thing. If we understand Christian doctrine properly, it's It brings light. It brings guidance. It stimulates love in the body of Christ. It stimulates our sense of freedom from man-made rules and man-made traditions and gives us the kind of Word of God that gives us life. And certainly that's true of Ephesians 1 through 3, where Paul lets us know that we have already been seated seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That, to me, is an amazing concept. We can't see it yet because we've got our earthly eyes, and sometimes we have our earthly attitudes. But God has already seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And that's an amazing thing. And so when you look at Ephesians 1 through 3, you get a chance to see how beautiful doctrine can be. Chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians has got one of my favorite prayers in the whole New Testament. Ephesians really teaches us the difference between the way people in church tend to pray 
and the way the people in the early church prayed. You know, the way, and I've said this before, the way we so often have prayed in churches is what I've heard some teachers call the roll call of the sick. And the whole prayer time is used up with praying for Aunt Aunt Sally's bad foot and Uncle Joe's cancer and, you know, Uncle Tom was going into the, the hospital soon. And we fill the whole prayer time with temporary earthly issues. And you might even be offended when I say that. Temporary earthly issues, these things are important. Well, yeah, but we're all going to die, right? (laughs) The fact of the matter is, there's going to be a time come when all of us are going to receive a no answer about, let me get over this sickness. We're all going to come to a day when the answer to that is no. Did you know that there are things that are even more important to pray about than that? For example... Paul in Ephesians 3 prays that I I ask the Father from whom every fatherhood has been named to enlighten the eyes of your heart so that you may have the power to understand how long, how high, how wide, how deep, he names four dimensions there, is the love of Christ. And that knowing that love, you will be rooted and grounded in love. He he prays a prayer from prison. I mean, that's what blows me away. There are a million things the Apostle Paul could be praying for because of his own fears, his own hurts, his own lack of certainty about the future. What he prays for instead is that our vision would get clearer about the love of Jesus for us. Must be important must be really important. Now, starting in chapter 4, right in the dead center of the book, we move from what we call doctrine to practice. And that is, how do these things that we've learned, how do these things which we understand, how do they change how we live? How do they change how we act? How do they change how we speak? He opened that section in chapter 4 talking about the kind of humility and forbearance. Now, forbearance isn't a word you may have ever seen except regarding a loan that you wanted to get a forbearance on. But the word forbearance used to be an important word in English for how human beings treated each other. And it means putting up with. (laughs) That there is this sense that we have to learn how to put up with each other. That Our relationships are sometimes going to rub our fur the wrong way. And forbearance means that we are ready to act with acceptance and to try to help support each other along the way. After he talks about the humility and the forbearance, then he talks how churches are supposed to work. He identifies the church leadership, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And he describes that the purpose of those leaders that God gave the church is to equip the people of the church so that the people can do the ministry. And if the people do the ministry, then we won't look like so many of the churches that you and I have been to. Instead, we will be capable of speaking the truth in love. We will mature into knowing what proper Christian doctrine is. We will be able to work 
together side by side in the ministry of the body of Christ until the whole body is built up. You may find that you have attitudes inside yourself, expectations that push against this. One of my favorite examples is hospital calls and hospital visitations. When you think of a hospital call or a hospital visitation, do you immediately think of someone who is ordained and professionally a pastor being the one who should make that call? Or do you recognize that in Jesus Christ, you are a priest and you have all the power of access to God and ability to speak the word of encouragement to that person in the hospital that any ordained person has. That's one of those places where it's actually pretty easy to serve. I mentioned last time I spoke to you that once upon a time, a woman called her pastor and told her that her friend was in the hospital and could he go see her? And the pastor responded, I'm sorry, I'm book solid. I'm not going to be able to do that. You go see your friend yourself. And the woman says, I don't know how to do that. And the pastor says, of course you do. Don't stay too long. Don't sit on the bed and have a prayer before you go. There you are. You are blessed to serve. And that's everything almost you need to know. We need to change our attitudes so that we recognize that we are all the ministers of the body of Christ. And if we do that, then the whole church will be built up, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped as each part does its work. Now, we go from verse 16 to verse 17 in Ephesians chapter 4, and we get such careful description of how you and I should live, how you and I should act. One of the things that's really hit me about Ephesians 4 is if this chapter were well known to churches all over the United States, we would not have so many people in this country who describe themselves as being de-churched. I used to go to church, but the people there did this to me, or this person said such and such, or this happened. If churches knew Ephesians 4, we would not have so many of those incidents. You can look in this book and see how becoming a Christian was supposed to change us, and still can. Look at what he says beginning in verse 17. Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord. That's the word witness. It's the old Greek word martyreo, where we get the word martyr. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now remember, we've run into this word walk a few times in this book already. And I've shared with you that when you see the word walk in the New Testament or in the teachings of Jesus, we don't usually mean what you do for your aerobic health outside. Walk in the New Testament normally means how you live, what you do as you go through your day. As my favorite teacher once said, it is my habit of life. How do I act habitually? How do I normally act? You must no longer habitually act as the Gentiles the non-Jews, or in this case, the unsaved do. When Paul uses the word Gentiles here, he's referring to people that have no covenant relationship with God. Surprise, surprise. Did you know that your religion was supposed to change what kind of person you are? It's supposed to actually make a difference. 
in how we act and how we speak. Paul is having to tell the church, don't act like you did before you came to Jesus. Don't act like people do who don't know Jesus. In the futility of their minds. Wow. We don't really believe our minds are futile. We don't believe that. We really believe we can figure out the right way to know God, the right way to serve God, just from inside our own heads. We really believe we can. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that human thinking and human feeling are both fallen. Paul tells us that the only thing that natural man can know about God is his divine power, his supernatural nature to bring life, but that's really all we can know apart from his word to us. Futile, what does futile mean? In the Bible, this word futile or vain, the old Bible says vanity, that word refers to something that is both empty, in other words, you're not going to find the meaning of life there, it's empty, and it is pointless in the sense that it's not going anywhere. When we try to do our religion, when churches try to do their religion by their best thinking, they're going to find themselves going around in circles. Because human rationale can't get you there. Can't get you where you need to be. Don't walk as the uncovenanted do in the futility of their minds. They, I could also say we, are darkened in our understanding. God is infinite. He fills the universe. I can't see him directly. I can't sense him directly. I can't measure him. If he doesn't speak to me, I don't know anything about him. It's so important for us to understand that. You know from watching the news that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who pray every day. They pray every day. And some of them who pray are cutting off people's heads while they kneel in front of flags. And that's their understanding of what God wants them to do. That happened by uninformed prayer. I think it's really important for us to see that. In the history of the church, in the history of the church on our planet, uninformed prayer caused crusades, caused inquisitions, caused people to be burned at the stake. Among the Aztecs on our own continent, uninformed prayer caused people to cut the hearts out of other people and throw them off a pyramid as a sacrifice to try to make sure that the sun would come up the next morning. It is so important that we get the clue that prayer uninformed by the Word, human thinking and feeling uninformed by the Word, leads to murder. <laughs> It leads to hatred of our fellow man. It leads to a church that oppresses people 
with its teaching. It doesn't lead to spiritual freedom. It doesn't lead to relationship with God. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus himself calls it pointless religion. He calls it worshiping God in vain. It's so important that we understand this. Our minds as human beings naturally are darkened. We are finite. He is infinite. We cannot understand him if he doesn't speak to us. Alienated. Without the word of God, without what Jesus has done for us, we are alienated from the life of God because of that very ignorance that I was speaking about before. People today, you know, I've noticed when I use the word ignorant or ignorance today, that people think that's just a way to insult someone. I don't know why that word is changing flavor. The word ignorance simply refers to something I don't know. You do not want, before you go unconscious under a medical anesthetic, you do not want to see me standing near the head of your table getting ready to perform brain surgery on you. You don't want to see that because I am ignorant about how to do brain surgery. That's not an insult to me. It's just a fact. Ignorance refers to what I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know. There's a lot of things you don't know. Some things we know we don't know. Where it gets scary is the things that we don't know that we don't know them. That's what happens in religion. People don't realize that they don't know what they don't know. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The prophet Hosea in chapter 4 verse 6 says, My people are destroyed, destroyed from lack of knowledge. And I'm not talking about passing your science classes and math. We're talking about ignorance of the word of God, of God's wisdom, of what he taught us, of what he called us to do, how he told us to live. The prophet says, My people are destroyed when they lack that. The ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. One of the things that is dawning on me with increasing clarity is that the normal texture of a human's heart is hard. That's the normal texture of a human heart. If someone is raised so that they're starting life tender, just wait a while. After being exposed to this world... Eventually, those hearts get hard. The Apostle Peter, in going from chapter 1 to chapter 2 of his first letter, says that when we don't have the Word of God to clarify who we are, that we depend on the sincere spiritual milk of the Word, that our normal way of acting is malice, envy, deceit, hypocrisy, and slander. That's what the Apostle Peter says is normal human behavior. That's what we normally are. Is it any wonder we need a Savior? Due to the hardness of our hearts, human hearts are hard. And Paul says they, referring to those who don't know Jesus, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. You know how much sugar I put in my coffee or my tea? I put sugar in my coffee or my tea until I can taste it. 
if I can't taste it, I put more in. And do you see that what Paul is saying here is that the normal way of living as human beings is when our hearts get calloused, we expose ourselves to various pleasures or entertainments or whatever turns us on, we expose ourselves to those things until we can feel them. Our insensitivity causes us to put those things on ourselves until we can get what we want out of them. That's called sensuality. And it is also normal for human society, unled by the Word of God, to become more and more and more sensuous over time, more and more decadent over time. Ask a rich person, how much money do you need? What will they say? Ask the shareholders of one of the big multinational corporations, how much money do they need? What will they say? Enough to flood the ancient family lands of Nigeria with oil and destroy that nation's ability to raise its own crops? It's not enough money for the leaders of those corporations. They want more. That's one of our favorite words as human beings. More. I want more. That's what we naturally are. They have given themselves up to sensuality. Oops, greed. (laughs) This word refers to the inability to be satisfied. The need always to have more. That's our instinct. Notice, it's right there in verse 19. Giving themselves up to sensuality, greed to practice every kind of impurity. That's funny. Normally, when I think about greed, I think of money. Here, greed is tied to my need for sensation, my need for entertainment, my need, my felt need, for impurity. And I can't ever be satisfied. I can't ever get enough. I won't ever be full. Some people in the world discover that. They discover that even though they have pursued the life of the flesh and they've pursued it with wild abandon, some people are wise enough after they've accrued enough scars and enough emptiness, some people become aware that they aren't getting anywhere, that the life that they're chasing isn't filling them, that it's not checking the meaning of life box, and if they don't change directions, they're never going to experience it. And that's one of the reasons why people come to the Lord, because they recognize that their own lordship, their own lordship is not taking them anywhere except damage and destruction, self-destruction. And Paul emphasizes in verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. You know what? Paul had his longest ministry in this city. I I often wonder whether Paul would ever get hired by a modern church. You know, where was the longest ministry you ever had? Ephesus? Oh, really? How many years was that? Uh, About three. How did your separations go from the churches you were at? Um, You really want to talk about this? Well, there was, a, there was a riot in Thessalonica. There was a riot in Berea. There was a, there was a riot in Ephesus. 
There was, uh, say, Timothy, where were all those churches we were at in, uh, in uh, Galatia? Uh, yeah, Paul, there was a riot in every one of those. Yeah, so usually the terminations don't go very well. Separations don't go very well. Usually end up in jail wherever I'm ministering. But I do preach Jesus. <laughs> I wonder what he get hired. I don't think so. That is not the way you learn Christ. Paul had been at Ephesus long enough for sure that he knew how the people there had been discipled. He had been involved in the discipling. He had taught them how to disciple. When he got ready to go back to Jerusalem to get thrown in prison there, he was able to speak to elders that he and Timothy and Apollos and, and um, Priscilla and Aquila, elders that they had all trained, all discipled, and were now able to shepherd that church. And so he knows when he says, you have not learned Christ that way. You have not learned Christ so that Jesus in you will walk hand in hand with your sensuality. That Jesus will walk hand in hand with your greed or your impurity. You have, you have learned that you don't follow Jesus like that. That's not how we do Jesus. I assume, and here we, here we hear Paul get a little bit sarcastic. We'll hear that every now and again. Verse 21. Maybe you'll want to say ironic or facetious or something that makes it kinder and gentler. But check out verse 21. Label it however you want. I assume that you've heard about him, Jesus. <laughs> you, you've heard about Jesus, right? And you were taught in him as the truth is in him. I want you to notice that Jesus and the apostles believed in a thing called truth. There is such a thing as truth, and there is such a thing as what is not true. You know that doesn't exist much in our country anymore. Our country has now followed the way of Pontius Pilate, who has said, what, was, what is truth? And because our country is following this direction, what is truth? We are also becoming a country where murder is on the rise, where hatred of all kinds is on the rise, where our, our children are performing among the worst of children in developed nations. Our scores are low. We're now ranked 28th among developed nations in the quality of education that our children are demonstrating. We lack a vision of truth. And it takes the feet out from under us, everything we do. Surely you have heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self. I call this sermon turning to life that means something. The way we naturally are as human beings is with hearts that get ever more callous, tastes that become ever more sensuous, directions that lead us nowhere, and where we damage ourselves, where when we look back, we wonder, what have we, what have we accomplished? What have we done? What has been left? as a legacy to our lives. Paul says, put that old life off. He will write in Romans chapter 12 to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That idea of the living sacrifice is I take the mark that is natural to me and I put that mark off and I let it die 
except it doesn't really stay dead yet, does it? We've all got zombie problems or vampire problems, right? The old dead person inside us keeps trying to squirm back up off the altar, doesn't it? You wish you could drive a stake through the heart of the thing and it would stay dead. What our life is like right now is that Jesus is continuously working in us if we are following him. He continues to work in us to transform us into what we can be in him. And then when the day comes that we pass on or that he shows up in the sky, rips the sky in half and comes down and calls us up, the sky be rolled back as a scroll. On that day, that thing's not going to try to get up off the altar anymore. Aren't you looking forward to it? I am so looking forward to the time when my own sinful self is not constantly warring against my mind and my feelings and my body. I am really looking forward to that. Put off your old self. It belongs to your former way of life, and it is corrupted through deceitful desires. Look at the way those two words go together, deceitful desires. Did you know that some of the desires that you normally feel are deceitful? Did you know that? And what it means is those desires are lying to you. What are they lying to you about? Well, the desires say, I want this. I will be happy if I have this. And when they say to us, I will be happy if I have this, they are lying to us. We won't be happy. You know what the word deceitful is in the original language? I love this. The original word to deceive in the original language that the New Testament was written in, the original word is planao, where we get our English word planets. And you know why the planets were called planets? Because they aren't stars. If you plot your movement by a star, you will go the same direction all night long. But if you plan your direction by a planet, you will keep following the planet as it orbits through the night, and it'll lead you in a circle. So they named planets wandering stars because they would fool us with their direction. Our desires do that. Our desires deceive us and we follow the wrong guides. Put off those, and instead, this is a very interesting expression in 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Have you ever thought of your mind's particular connection to your spirit? How do I think if I am a spiritual person led by the Word? What would I think? And to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true, because there are false versions of this, in true righteousness, that means trying to do what God sees as the right thing to do, and holiness. Holiness means to belong to God, that I belong to Him, that I recognize that my body, my actions, my words, everything need to reflect His ownership. So instead of following my old life, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, I am instead putting on Christ to walk in righteousness and holiness. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, in the chapter so far, he's given us kind of the big picture. You know, leave behind these things that are going to mislead you. Leave those things behind. And then beginning in verse 25, he starts telling us what specific difference it's going to make. 
Therefore, if you have put off the old self, if you're putting on the new self to be more righteous and holy the way God is making you, then here comes the shopping list. Here comes the list of the places where you and I should be able to see changes in our own behaviors. Therefore, having put away falsehood, number one, let each of you speak truth with your neighbor. For we are members one of another. The very first thing in verse 25 that we see that putting on the new self, conforming to Jesus in righteousness and holiness, the very first thing that it does is it should cause us to speak more transparently, more openly, more honestly. This book would challenge me with the question, why would I lie to my brother Raymond? Why would I conceal something from my brother Raymond? Raymond is part of me. He is a member of the body of Christ, as am I. He is my brother in the Lord. He is actually a fellow member of the same body. What happens to your human body when one part starts lying to another part about what it is or what it's doing? In medicine, we call that cancer. <laughs> you know that? Cells are lying about being normal, natural, healthy cells. That's what happens in churches. People deceive. People conceal. People misrepresent. People don't speak openly. And when that happens, you get weird growth that happens in a church. Mutation that isn't of Christ. Speak the truth with each other, for we are members one of another. And then we get this amazing verse, be angry and do not sin. He's going to warn us about two things with anger. Number one, when you and I are angry... One thing we are tempted to do in our anger is to sin. Anger seems to thin our walls when it comes to things like righteousness and holiness. We seem to be more willing to sin when we are angry. So one of the things that Paul warns us is, number one, when you get angry, watch. Be careful that you don't sin just because you're angry. Watch out for that. And second, don't let the sun go down on it. Don't let the sun go down on that anger. It took me a long time to internalize and experience why it was so important to resolve anger quickly. And I don't mean to repress it. I don't, I'm not a big fan of repression. I have this feeling that when we stuff things down, that it both makes us sick and it will pop up some other weird location because we've just stuffed it down instead of healing it or fixing it. But what I have learned about anger is that when we stuff it down, when it doesn't resolve, it does two things. Number one, it increases in size. If I get, if I get angry with a brother or sister in the church or in my family, and I don't find a way of resolution in, in what Jesus has told us to do, if I don't do that, then by the time I've brooded on it all evening, and I go to sleep and I take it to bed with me, and I get up in the next morning, and it's still pounding at my consciousness the next morning as I get ready and as I have breakfast, then this thing starts to absorb more and more of my thinking, especially about that person. The second thing that my anger does, and I believe it happens with a lot of human beings because I've seen it. But the other thing that anger seems to do is it seems to morph. It seems to mutate. 
Not only does it get large, it gets weird. And by the next night, if I haven't driven a stake through the heart of this thing somehow, by the next night, I will not only tell you how offended I am with what they did, but I'll begin to tell you what they're thinking. I'll begin to tell you why they did what they did. As if I think I'm Jesus Christ and I can read the hearts of other human beings. And I will confess to you openly that every time that I have caught myself doing that, I have been wrong. Every time. That when I try to guess what someone else, why someone else has done what they've done, I will always provide a reason that is more malignant than is true. I will always come up with a darker interpretation of their soul than why they were actually doing what they were doing. The Bible is very clear here. Do not sin when you are angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Look at verse 27. Don't give, my Bible here says an opportunity for the devil. What it literally says here is a place. Don't give room for the devil. Don't give him a place to stand. Don't give him a place to work. Because I tell you, when he sees that we're angry, what's clear from this is that he is looking for a place to stand and work. Because he knows how vulnerable we are in those moments. And he will try to find a way to worm in and make us act differently than we would normally act if we hadn't been angry. Don't give him an opportunity. You've heard the old Bible. Don't give him a foothold. And then in verse 28, friends, verse 28, when you read it, it may first look like it's a verse only about stealing. But what verse 28 is in fact It's one of the best descriptions of true Christian repentance I've ever seen. You know, in Psalm 34, verse 14, the psalmist David talks about repentance this way. He says, turn from evil and do good. Those of you who have heard me preach know that this is very important to me. And the reason it's important to me is because in my life of ministry to churches, it seems to me a lot of Christians don't understand this. Repentance, turn from evil and do good. I love that definition. Not a word in it that's longer than four letters, so it's easy to understand. The problem is that in modern American society, most of the time when people repent, they only tell you what they stopped doing. Because I'm a Christian now, I don't do this anymore, I don't do this anymore, I don't do this anymore, I don't do this anymore. Well, what do you do? Uh... I go to church most of the time. You've heard the old, you've heard the old rhyme, I don't uh, smoke and chew, I don't drink and chew, I don't go with girls that do. That's kind of like what church repentance has been like in the United States for the last more than 100 years. But it, repentance is not complete in the Lord when we stop doing what is evil. There's something that's supposed to take its place. There's a new kind of life that's supposed to exist in us. If we just stop doing what's evil, then we end up being empty. Like that fig tree that made Jesus so mad. You're putting out leaves and advertising that you've got fruit, but when I come to you for fruit, there's no fruit. You remember the time he argued with the Pharisees? And he said to the Pharisees, what is right to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? 
What made the Pharisees nuts is that Jesus didn't include their answer in the list. They wanted the answer to be to do nothing. That's what the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to do, to stop healing on the Sabbath. We want you to do nothing on the Sabbath. But see, that's not repentance. Repentance is to turn from evil and do good. And so it makes perfect sense when we read in Ephesians 4.28, the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's repentance. I've gone from being a taker to someone who is willing to work so I can give. That is complete repentance. That's 180 degrees. It's nice when I stop stealing, but the repentance isn't complete yet. The repentance becomes complete when I go from being a taker to being one who will work so that I can be a giver. That's when we cross the whole, the whole yard. And see, Paul has, he's writing us a complete picture of the new Christian life. We stop doing this, we start doing this. And then we come to 429. 429 has been a really important verse in the history of my ministry. Some of the most successful moments of ministry I had was when I included Ephesians 4.29 in the use of that ministry. Let no corrupting talk, let nothing rotten, let nothing dirty come out of your mouths, but only such as is good. You know what? I kind of expect church to tell me the first half of this verse. You know, don't let rotten stuff come out of your mouth. I expect churches to tell me that. But you know the part of this verse I have the most trouble with is the second half of the verse. That but only is what kills my mouth. But only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. To only speak what is helpful for building others up that it may give grace to those who listen. I once almost killed a youth group. I'd been ministering there for three years and had the course of my ministry had dropped this group from eight kids to four kids. And when the Lord was leading me on the road for how to make the youth group actually function, one of the things that I realized was the importance of Ephesians 4.29. And we made a rule in our tiny youth group that we would stop teasing. Now, you know, that's not an easy thing. If you're an a, 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 a fun-loving person, a playful person, a person who likes to joke around, stopping teasing can be difficult to do. We might really miss it. But what I realized was that I wanted every kind of kid to be safe in my youth group. You know, like the old Oscar Mayer Wiener commercial, the fat kid, the skinny kid, the kid who plays on rocks, the tough kid, the sissy kid, even the kids with sissy chicken pox. I want all of them to be safe in our youth group. And so you know what I taught them to do with each other? I taught them if they heard any member of the group tease anyone else, that they were to take out their finger, they were to point it, they were to wag it up and down, and in the most annoying nasally voice they could come up with, they were supposed to say, Ephesians 4.29. And we used that as a discipline for one another, and we shut teasing down in our group. And I want you to know that within the space of about five months, that group grew again from four kids to over three dozen children. Our group exploded. 
when we made the decision that everybody was going to be loved and supported there. I would encourage you to find a translation of the Bible that you especially like this verse, and I would encourage you to memorize it. Let nothing unwholesome come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up that it may benefit those who listen. I learned it in the old New International Version. And it is such a powerful rule for our mouths. And then we go from 29 to 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Wow, that's right. God is near. He hears what comes out of my mouth. He sees what I do when I'm angry. You know, it was in this same book just two, three chapters ago, chapter one, where we learned that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. The Holy Spirit was stamped on us, put in us as what the scripture called the first fruits of the salvation that we're receiving from God, which means that the Holy Spirit is right here. And if I say something to you that wounds your spirit, the Holy Spirit is right there listening to what comes out of my mouth. The one who is supposed to be the seal of my salvation is also the nearness of the Lord watching how I talk to people who are around me. That's very sobering. Sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all kinds of malice. Oh my gracious. You know, I think about where Christianity, Christendom is in 2015 on this planet. And we definitely have the reputation for being the meanest, most difficult people on the whole planet. And you see what we are naturally. And I'm not saying that this only happens in the church, but it becomes obvious when it's in the church because we're supposed to be doing something else. Let bitterness go away. Let wrath go away. Let anger and clamor and slander. I want to remind you, in the church, slander doesn't have to be untrue. In a court of law in the United States, to prove slander, you have to prove that it's untrue. But that's not true in the Bible. In the Bible, slander is anything I do with my mouth with the intent to destroy you, to damage you. There are times I can tell the truth to damage you. And as we've read here in Ephesians chapter 4, it's not the most wonderful thing in the world for me to tell the truth. What's the most Christian thing in the world is for me to learn how to tell the truth in love. And so we come to home plate, verse 32 at the end of chapter 4, with this simple commandment. And you and I are likely to dismiss how important it is. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind. You know, in the original language, the word kind here has the word hand in it. The word kind in the Bible refers to something that you do. Something that can be felt, seen, and experienced. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted. You know, we aren't tender-hearted. We're, we're tough. Our world has made us tough. We've got thick skins, and when other people hurt, sometimes we don't care. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. Wow. Once again, we have forbearance, right? Forgiving one another implies that you're going to do things that I'm going to have to forgive. It implies that I'm going to do things that you're going to have to forgive. That us just being together means that we're going to end up forgiving each other if we're doing what Christ wants. 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God, how do I forgive? As God in Christ forgave me. Remember the old prayer, forgive us our debts, how? To the extent I feel like it? (laughs) He owes me a million dollars, I'll forgive him $9.74. Forgive as God in Jesus Christ forgave us. This may sound a little hokey, but you know there used to be a children's song that kids used to sing in Sunday school and in vacation Bible school. They used to go, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Do 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 Ephesians 4:32. Yeah. It is a rule for life. It is a way to live. And anytime you look at yourself and you don't like what you see, remember what's in Ephesians 4 and go back and pray and read and give yourself a tune-up. The big question is simple and straightforward this morning. It is something like when we look at our lives and ask whether we are acting and speaking like Christians, what will we find? This chapter describes with a lot of specifics the difference between living like people of the world and living like Christians. What will we find when we look at ourselves? And if we find something inside us that isn't truly Christian, will we make the changes that God calls us to make? Let us walk the walk. Let us talk the talk that Jesus leads us in. Pray with me. God in heaven, we need to repent. We need to keep repenting. These things that we've read, Lord, make them so among us. Make them so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.